Lord, this morning I want to pray for Jim Corbett and uh, for the uh, Greenville Bible Church or Greenville Christian Church. Lord, we just want to want to pray for Jim and his marriage and uh, pray for his time with you. Pray for his worship and his wonder. Lord, I pray that all those things are all just uh, spilling all over onto each other. I pray that his time in the Word is blessed and he is amazed more and more each week by grace. He's blown away by um, how low grace reaches. Lord, I pray that he's encouraged in walking with the people and seemingly ordinary setting, a daily environment of sowing into the lives of people and walking with the people through that word that's been sown. Lord, I pray that he finds a sweet encouragement. I pray that right now, as even maybe right now as he's preaching, that he is out of the way. I pray that he's poured out onto a people and that ultimately that the word is exposed and that you are glorified that people are built and directed and Lord that you are glorified in that entire work Lord we pray that you would guard us and guard uh, this church from um, the Christian church in Greenville just guard us from ever having a spirit of competition with each other Lord we pray that we can cheer for each other that we can hope and pray for great things for your glory and um Lord, I ask your forgiveness for the, the spirit of competition, competition in this community that sometimes shows up and just pray that you will change the heart of the believers in this community over time and that we'll bring glory to you as a um, truly involved people that are involved in walking with each other. Lord, we love you so much. We turn these next moments over to you for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> turn to John 14, please. This morning is sort of, sort of part B to last week's message. We're going to, in the first few minutes, kind of engage last week's questions. We asked some tough questions of a passage that really has traumatized me a little bit. And uh, maybe we'll all be traumatized together. This morning's message, I feel like, is uh, really what I want to share last week. And we'll, we'll get to that. But uh, let's start with our passage. This is embedded within... Really, the last few words that Jesus shared right up to the cross. This is in the night before, uh, whether he's sitting at the table, this Lord's Supper environment, or whether they're walking on the way to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane, or whether they're already there. I've walked up the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane, so I just would find it hard to believe they're having this sort of conversation on the way because it's straight up. But um, at some point in that night before Jesus went to the cross that next morning, He's sharing this sea of red that's chapters 14 through 17. And we're in chapter 14, verse 12, engaging a pretty difficult passage. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me or the believing one in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. In reading ahead in the previous months coming up to this section, I've been quite alarmed at this section. Because we've had to deal with some difficult truths, difficult questions, really. This promise that Jesus makes has really struck me, this promise that Whoever believes in me or the believing ones in me will do the works that I've done and even greater. It's really made me swallow hard and question 
myself, examine myself, examine what I believe. Because when I really take that promise in light of what he's done up to this point in time, this is even before cross and resurrection, just what he's done with his miracles, then I have to swallow hard and go, man, this is an amazing promise. When I consider just the signs or the miracles of the book of John, which are not all of them, it's just seven of them that John represents or shares. When I consider just those seven, I've got to swallow hard. The first of those seven was taking water, real water, and then pouring it off and turning it into wine. As it pours, I don't know if it happened in the jug or as it's in the air or in the cup, it doesn't matter. The fact that water was in the pots and it's pouring off into wine is an amazing miracle. And it wasn't just any old cheap sherry cooking wine. This is fine wine. In fact, when they passed it to the host so he could test it first, he's like, whoa, man, the wedding's kind of coming to a close. What are you doing pulling out the good stuff last? Because by this point, nobody will even care. That's really essentially what he's saying. Jesus changed water to wine. That's amazing. That's a great work. The next miracle, he took a, a man came to him, a nobleman, a man of power, a man of resources, a man of money, came to him and said, hey, my son is near death's door. And Jesus healed him from afar. The next miracle that John represents is a man that's been lame for 38 years. He's been lame by the pool of Bethesda. I'll share more about the details of what that is later. But this man has been lame for 38 years. Likely his family drops him off every day at that pool. I'll go ahead and tell you now. They believed that these pools had an angel that would show up every now and again. And when the angel showed up, he would stir the waters. And if you managed to be right next to where it was stirring and flop over in the pool at the right time, you'd be healed. Jesus shows up to these pools, really it was, these porticos of Bethesda. He shows up and he goes up to this one man that's been laying for 38 years. He asks him if he want to be healed. And he tells him to pick up his mat and walk. And then there's feeding the multitudes. He takes just a couple loaves and fish, and he turns it into feeding at least 5,000 people. We know there's 5,000 men, and it wasn't like a promise keeper's event. Their wives and children likely everywhere. So this was likely thousands of people that he fed from just a couple loaves and fishes. That's some amazing stuff. And then there was walking on the water. Now, if we'd actually seen that, That'd be pretty amazing. We're not talking about some shoal that he's walking on through the Sea of Galilee. He's actually walking on water. And he's walking on water in a stormy night. He's like high step in the high seas. And the disciples see him and they're scared to death thinking it's an apparition. He walks on water. And then he heals a man that's been blind his entire life. A man that sits by the gate just asking for money every day. A man that has been blind his entire life. He sort of recreates. I'll get into that in a moment. Puts some clay on his eyes, sends him off to the pool of Siloam. This man receives his sight. And then really the crescendo of great works, he calls a man from death to life, a man that's been dead for four days. A man, which you can expect, rigor mortis has set in. You can also expect that the stink 
has set in by this point. Any of you ever had a broken arm and you put a cast on and you take that cast off and you're like, "Woo, that's not something I've ever smelled before or ever want to smell again. This, whole, this man's entire person would smell that way. He is in a sealed tomb, dead. Jesus asks him to remove the stone and he calls this man from death to life. Those are some pretty amazing works. And Jesus says, you will do these things or these things and greater And he's speaking to disciples, but he's speaking when he says, seems to be to us when he says, the believing ones in me. Whoever believes in me will do these works and greater. Man, this is an amazing promise if we really take it in, that the believing one in him will do these sort of things. Shared last week, and I'll share with you again, I want to get this passage right. I want to understand this passage. I want us to plumb the depths of this passage because this is a promise communicated from our Lord to us, it seems. And it's made us ask some hard questions. Last week, we started with a few questions. First of all, what happened? 2,000 years ago, it seems like some amazing things were taking place, and this promise is shared. So what happened here 2,000 years later? Where are the great works? Who's being raised from the dead, and who's raising them from the dead? I'm not talking about healing toothaches. Or man, yeah, my back's been hurting for the last couple weeks, and let me bonk you in the head, be healed. I'm talking about black and white healings where people are just amazed. Man, God showed up. We're asking the question, why are we not seeing these things anymore? So we asked three hard questions last week. First of all, the first question, are we faithless now? Has maybe our faith decayed in this area Do we trust too much in what we see? Do we trust too much in modern medicine here in modern America? Do we make a beeline for the the medicine cabinet and bypass prayer and only pray when things really get terrible or scary? Do we run to the doctor first? Do we call the doctor instead of calling the elders first? Last week we considered that, man, we're supposed to do both. Nothing wrong with calling the doctor, but it looks like we're supposed to make a beeline to prayer. Last week, we considered that letters to the church at Galatia and letters to the Corinthians both seemed to indicate that signs and wonders and miracles were taking place in these churches. So what it left us with last week is that we should pray big. We should hope and pray for amazing works. And then we should call the doctor. Second question that we asked last week is, if faith has possibly decayed, are there some people that are walking in it now? Are these healings possibly taking place somewhere now? And we considered, we didn't really examine it, but there's reports from far corners of the field and lands where they can't make a beeline for medicine, where faith prays and you see some amazing healings. I haven't seen them firsthand, but I've heard from people that are, I would say, as credible sources. Some amazing things taking place in places where people don't make a beeline to prayer. But then we talked last week, what about Benny Hinn? What's up with Benny? Is that legit? What we considered last week is that 1 Corinthians 12, verse 9, this picture that seems to present these different lists of gifts, puts gifts of healing as plural, gifts of healings. And what that seems to indicate is that it's a mobile gift that moves around the body, that there's not any one person with the gift of healing. There's no picture in our New Testaments 
of that one person that can just, hey, man, it's on. Anybody sick? Man, it's on. Bam. There's no picture of that in our New Testaments, and there's no picture of that in the early church. It seems to be a mobile gift where you're not really sure who has it. That's why everybody prays. You don't know whose prayer God used. Seems to make little of that person that says, hey, I'm the healer. And make a lot of the people of God praying for someone who's sick. Then we asked a third question is, was this a unique time? We saw picture after picture where, yes, this seems like this was a unique time in the life of the church. Where passage after passage through the Acts, through the early church accounts, where signs and wonders and miracles were done by the hands of the apostles. Not exclusively, because there's also Stephen and Philip who were deacons. But at the hands of the apostles, primarily and especially, there's some amazing things that are being done. And in fact, when Paul argues with the church at Corinth and says, Hey, I am an apostle, knuckleheads. Remember the signs and wonders that I did at my hand? His evidence for being an apostle was, do you remember seeing those things? These were the guys, except for Paul, that sat with the Lord this night and heard these words. So while we should pray big, we also need to take into account that this was a unique time in the life of the church. So last week, we were left with the encouragement to embrace both. Pray big. Make a beeline to God first. But if you're walking around and your shadow doesn't heal people, don't be disheartened. Trust the Lord of that shadow. Trust the Lord of healing. Trust the great physician that he's going to do what he's going to do. And recognize this was a very unique time. I want to get this right on two levels. First of all, because I'm an elder, because me and the other elders are called whenever someone's sick or someone needs, has some sort of ailment that we're called to pray for them. We're called to lay hands on them and pray. I want to understand this and get this right. On that level, I want to get it right on the level of being a dad too. I shared with you at the end of the service last week that we have three kids and two of our three are visually impaired Luke is, uh, if you have any sense of acuity, Luke is about 2,600, 2,650. 2,250 is legally blind. He's well beyond that, although he's got pretty good functional vision. He's learning Braille. He's going to be walking with a cane. He'll probably have a dog someday. He'll never drive unless they create some sort of weird car that can drive for him. And Evan will never drive. Her vision is more like 2,300 But I want to get this right as a dad, too. And in fact, what I did this week, what Christy and I did this week, in response to this message, I'll share with you. I had lunch with someone this week. I think it was Monday. It may have been Tuesday. Lunch with a new friend. He was sharing a story with me about his family and about his daughter that had a severe case of arthritis, childhood arthritis that came on so bad that she couldn't even walk. And they called for the elders, and the elders prayed for her, and she was healed. And he asked me a question across the table there at Chick-fil-A that I appreciate the question. He said, have you ever called for the elders to pray for your kids? I thought, you know what? I preached it, but I hadn't done it. So I went home and talked to Christy about it, and Christy and I confessed to each other that our first impulse was, oh, man, that just doesn't sound like it's a good idea. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be possibly taking the kids through something that could be really disappointing, and it's sort of humbling hey, elders, can you come to our house and pray for our kids? They're 11 and 9, and we've never called for elders to come pray for a healing. When Evan was a baby, we prayed for a healing with her, 
But when Luke was born, we were just satisfied with it. Well, it is what it is. We found out Luke was visually impaired. We said it is what it is, and God is good, and we're okay with it. But we realized that in walking in obedience and walking into what we engaged last week, if we're going to make a beeline to prayer, we haven't done that, but we have a redemptive God. We've never asked God. So I met with the elders Thursday morning, and I shared with them and bounced the idea off of them, and they said, man, let's do it. So they came to the house Thursday night. Christy and Daniel. Daniel is our seeing eye boy. He can see. (laughs) Anytime there's a Lego missing, Daniel's the one that finds it. Daniel and Christy are sitting on the couch and Luke and Evan are sitting in the middle of the floor in some little bitty kid chairs and elders were all kneeling around them praying. We prayed for them and we prayed for healing. We prayed for their eyes and we prayed for their hearts. More for their hearts. But we did pray for their eyes. And they opened their eyes at the end of the prayer and they walked upstairs seeing, apparently seeing the same way that they were before we prayed. And I'll get into that more in a moment. But I want to demonstrate to y'all, and this will be part sermon, part testimony. I want to demonstrate to y'all that we want to make a beeline to God, whatever the cost. Whatever it means. And I'll share with you a little bit about what happened with Luke. But I want us to model as a people, making a beeline to God and asking for big things. For His glory. And then trusting Him in the outcome Today, though, I want to come at this passage and this promise from a different direction. I believe that today's treatment of this passage engages the real cream of this passage. The real marrow and sweetness. I don't want to engage it at face value like we did last week. This passage, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. I don't want to deal with it at face value like we did last week. I want to try and understand the heart that's behind those words. I want to understand the Lord. I want to understand the promiser to try and understand the promise. And in searching the promiser, I think we're going to discover the true greatness spoken of right here. I want to show you some evidence that Christ's definition of greater is different, maybe, than our definition of greater. It's certainly different from the world's definition of greater. Turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He's a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus is coming to Jesus by night, and he's basically saying, Jesus... Let's talk about that amazing eye candy. Let's talk about this amazing thing that you're doing of these works. So Jesus responds. He says, okay, truly, truly, I say to you, I know I'm pretty amazing. Truly, truly, I say to you, did you see that leper and how I healed him? Wasn't that something? His nose was hanging off and I just said, poop, right, right back. It was amazing, wasn't it? 
Did you see that wedding? Did you see how worried that host was? And then I said, hey, y'all take some water and put it in that pot and pour it off. And the host tasted that good wine. He said, "Woo, that's good. Did you see that, Nick? That was bad, wasn't it? Or how about when my disciples kept pulling fish and bread out of those grocery bags? Stick around, Nick. I'm going to show you some, some more tricks tomorrow morning. Nicodemus is coming to him saying, how are you doing all these amazing things, these signs and wonders and miracles, these great works? And Jesus' response to him is, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It looks like something is more important to Jesus than even the signs and the miracles and the wonders. Like, Nick, I I don't even want to talk to you about that. I want to talk to you about what really matters. And that is the kingdom of God. Seeing it, engaging it, experiencing this kingdom of God. Whenever we were preaching through this passage a while back, we went on a little journey, a kingdom of God study, because we wanted to understand the kingdom of God. It's all over our New Testaments, and we read it so much that it just kind of, a kingdom of God, you just read right real fast over it. We don't really know what it is. But we've got to know what it is to understand what matters to the promiser. What we found in studying the kingdom of God is that the kingdom of God is the invisible rule of God in the heart of man. And that be woman and kid too. Mankind. The invisible rule of God in the heart of man. And this kingdom, this kingdom of God that he's speaking of here is not like this world. For in this kingdom, the first is last and the last is first. It's not like any ordinary worldly kingdom that you can imagine. Things don't work that way. In this kingdom... The poor in spirit inherit it. In this kingdom, the meek inherit it. In this kingdom, the Lord of this kingdom actually looks for a donkey's colt to ride. (laughs) Are you kidding me? The rest of the disciples going, don't get on that. You look like a goober. He said, no, I'm going to find a donkey's colt to show these people what sort of king that I am. Another worldly king, a kingdom of God sort of king. Not as the world defines kingness, but a kingdom of God king. The Lord of this kingdom washes feet. What's impressive in the eyes of the world is not impressive in the kingdom of God. So we wonder, is the Lord's definition of greatness different from our definition of greatness, maybe? It's certainly different from the world's definition of greatness. What's impressive in the eyes of the kingdom and leads to a heavenly host rejoicing will likely get zero airtime in the world. Likely get zero airtime. In fact, it will likely get mocked if it gets airtime at all. The kingdom of God is terribly unimpressive in the eyes of the world. And you have to be reborn from above to even see it. You can't even appreciate it unless you've been reborn from above. The rest of the world is saying, that's silly. So Jesus is saying, Nick, let's not talk about those great signs and wonders. Let's talk about the greatness that is the kingdom of God. That's what I want to talk about, homeboy. I want to talk about true greatness. Seems like our Lord is defining greatness differently. Turn to Luke chapter 5. Show you some more evidence. Luke chapter 5. This is embedded within a section where Luke is sharing just these healings everywhere. 
Look over there on your left side of your page if you have an ESV. He heals a man with an unclean demon. He heals many. He preaches. He calls his disciples. Verse 12 of chapter 5, right above that, it says Jesus cleanses a leper. He's doing these healings all over the place. And then in verse 17, it says, on one of those days, I guess one of those days where he's really healing some people and he's preaching, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man that was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to get in, they called Jeff Ott and Bud Jones. And they said, guys, we need a hole in the roof. We need to let him down. I've been waiting for a chance to somehow weave that in. <laughs> Ooh, that's funny. Crack myself up. They are seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. All right, let's climb back in this. This dude's paralyzed. Let's get serious about it again. Like, imagine it's a family member, paralyzed. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. What I want you to see from this passage is that the greater work is the forgiveness of sins. The world is impressed. In fact, it says they were amazed and amazement seized them all. They're amazed at the taking up their bed and walking. But the kingdom is going to be impressed and delight in the man your sins are forgiven. The great work of saying pick up your mat and walk authenticated and validated the greater work. I've done this so that you may know that I have the authority to forgive sins. The kingdom of God says, yes, the forgiveness of sins, even better than being paralyzed and picking up and walking. It's almost like the healing is an afterthought. It's almost like he wasn't even going to do that. He just says, man, your sins are forgiven. And everybody's kind of like, ooh, ooh, it's a downer. He's not going to heal him. He's healed in the most important place already. It seems that Christ defines greatness differently. John, the writer of the book of John, gets the point. I want to show you how John even adds more evidence to Jesus' definition of greater as different from likely our definition, certainly the world's definition of greater. When John wrote this book, turn back over to John, and just let's go to... um, I want to show you this because this is a good reference for us for you to engage periodically while we're working through John. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. 
I go back and read this verse frequently as I'm teaching and preaching through John because I want to remember the point of the letter. If you forget the point of a letter, it's very easy to go the wrong direction. This is a great passage to try and understand. John writes, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's basically saying, hey, he did a lot of miracles. In fact, I saw all of them. But these seven are written for a specific purpose. I've written these seven great things so that you may understand the greater things. These seven works are presented purposefully to fulfill the purpose of this book. And while each of these works was amazing in and of themselves, they're great because they defy the laws that we seem to be bound to. Walking on water, (laughs) they defy gravity. What's up with that? If your son is near death and he heals your son from afar, you're like, man, that's greatness. These things are great in and of themselves, but the beauty in these works is what they point to, something even greater. They each represent a greater, richer truth, a kingdom of God truth that you can't even see unless you have kingdom of God sort of eyes. And John weaves them together to show the godness of Jesus and to illuminate and illustrate belief and salvation. That's why this book is just so sweet. Let's consider them each individually. Turning water to wine. You know the story. It's a big deal whenever you ran out of wine at a, at a wedding. It's a big deal. In fact, the host could actually be brought before the courts. It was bad news. And they ran out of wine before the celebration was over. So Jesus turning water to wine would be greatness for you if you were the host. Or if you were the family. Or if you were at the party. You're like, man, that's really cool how he turned water to wine like that. But what you need to appreciate is that greatness pointed to a greater greatness. See, the Jewish ritual system involved the cleansing with water. That's why the Pharisees were so upset with the, with the disciples because they didn't wash their hands with water before they ate. You guys are dirty. They had a high view of this water ritual cleansing. And the Lord replacing the water with wine shows that there's a new cleansing in town. And that wine represents the blood that he's going to shed later. And the, what he's offering is as different as water and wine and not any old cheap sherry cooking wine, but fine wine. There's a greater greatness, greatness that this points to. And considering that his first miracle is done at a wedding is a sweet connection to the fact that he's going to be the groom of the church. Is that appropriate? Is that beautiful? See, we can be so focused on the presence and quality of the wine that we miss the greater reality that it points to. Then there's the healing of the official son in John chapter 4. He shows his disciples, and he shows this nobleman, he shows all those around who are paying attention, who have the kingdom eyes. He's showing them that even stature and power can't deal with the issues of life and death. You can't purchase a way out of dealing with those issues. But only Christ is the answer for the rich and the poor, for the powerful and the helpless. That's the greatest greatness. The next one 
The next miracle, healing the lame guy, lame 38 years. You may not realize this because we always refer to the nation of Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They actually wandered from Sinai onward for 38 years. So there's a beautiful sweetness in him coming to a man that's been lame for 38 years, a Jew, no less. Coming to a man who's been lame for precisely the amount of time that Israel wandered in the wilderness after Mount Sinai. And he's raising, what he's doing here in healing this man, he's showing that what he's offering and bringing is that he's raising lame Israel up to now walk in freedom and liberty from law and sin and the yoke of the Pharisees. Pick up your mat, Israel. That's the greater greatness. And there's feeding the multitudes, five loaves and two fish for 5,000 men. Who knows how many total were there. Once this meal is digested, the next day he's preaching about actually being the bread of life. See, John is writing these for a purpose. He's weaving this story together so you can see the greater great. He's showing them as he's preaching that they, as they in their hunger, ate loaves and fishes that he provided. That they're like the people who ate manna and quail that God provided 1,500 years earlier. He's being quite godlike in providing this food for them. And then as he preaches, he's showing them that spiritual hunger will hopefully lead to eating the bread of life given to the world. There's a greater great behind the miracle of feeding the 5,000 only to be enjoyed with kingdom eyes. Then there's the walking on the water. That's pretty great. But what he's showing beyond just walking on the water, he's showing that he owns the wind and the waves, that he owns gravity, that he owns two molecules of hydrogen and one of oxygen. He owns all those things. They bow to him. The irony after he fed the multitudes the day before is that they wanted to make him king so that he could whip Rome's behind. The disciples did too. And that's when he went up off to the hillside and prayed. And he said, disciples, you go get in the boat and you go across the Sea of Galilee. I need to go spend some time with my father. They wanted to make him king. And here's the beauty. He's showing them as he walks on the water that he's a much larger than the king than they want. They could see him walking on the water and go, "Woo! look at him walk on the water. I bet he could sure whip Rome. Seems like an inappropriate response, doesn't it? What they ought to say when they see someone walking on the water is go, what Rome? Who's Rome? Look at God showed up and walked on the wind and the waves that he owns. He's showing them he's a different Lord altogether. So there's a great work of walking on the water, but there's a greater greatness that it points to. And there's the healing of blind man. This is a great work. A man born blind now seeing he bends over, he spits on the dust that he created. He makes some clay, and he sort of does a recreation of Genesis chapter 2, and he puts it in the man's eyes, and he sends him to the pool of Siloam. And the man washes in the pool of Siloam, and then he sees. That's a great work, right? But the greater work takes place later in the chapter when Jesus seeks him out, and he opens the eyes of the man's heart in worship and wonder when he sees Jesus as his Lord and he falls on his face worshiping. There's a greater great. John wrote these things so that we may believe. He weaved together some great works so that we will see the greater works. 
And then that crescendo of John chapter 11, raising Lazarus from the dead, a man four days dead. It's a beautiful picture of salvation. Being wrought from death to life. This resurrection pointed to something greater, something greater that can only be seen with kingdom eyes. Man, I want to come at this whole promise from a different direction and recognize that Christ does some amazing things, but they serve a purpose that's far greater than the miracle itself. And as much as they matter, especially to somebody who's been blind forever, as much as they matter, especially to the parents or the family members that drop off the lame dude at the pool of Bethesda every day, as much as they matter to a host at a wedding, the works themselves are secondary issues. They are secondary issues pointing to the primary issues. There's evidence outside the Gospels also. I, the, the letters that Paul wrote to Timothy and Titus are near and dear to me because they're written to a pastor. And I want to read those and I want to eat those and I want to understand those. And as I read First and Second Timothy and Titus, I see a, a stark absence of anything having to do with signs and wonders and miracles. He's writing to church planners and he's not saying, hey, be sure you've got your bonk procedure on. Be sure you've got your healings down. Be sure you find out who the duty healer is. What he's saying to Timothy and Titus is remember what your mammy taught you and your grandmammy taught you, Lois and Eunice. And preach the word in season and out. And go plant churches and find men qualified to lead those churches as, as elders. And then go find some deacons that are qualified to serve that people, putting on display Christ's work. And go be the people of God. Where are the wonders? That's a greater great, is being the people of God. A greater great is remembering what your mother and your grandmother taught you. A greater great is to preach the word in season and out. A greater great is to recognize elders and have them lead the church well, and to recognize deacons and have them serve the church well. That's the greater great than a bunch of signs and wonders. Man, I just wonder if we've come at this in the right direction. I hope we have by this point today. Because it seems that signs and miracles and healings are secondary issues that are so easily made primary. I see it every, all the time. People that are just kind of lukewarm about God. When somebody gets sick, man, prayer everywhere. Scripture everywhere. I'm saying, man, where are you when things are okay? Where does God stack up in your life when things are Okay. And these things become so primary so easily because we so love the sensational. But we've got to engage and realize that these are great works illustrating greater realities. And here's the question I got to we got to engage. Isn't a life change a greater work? Isn't it? Which is greater? Give someone vision who's been blind their whole lives or share a gospel that gives someone eyes to see God in his work? Which is greater, give someone a meal or give them the bread of life that truly satisfies? Which is greater, call someone from death to life or give them eternal life with the good news? For the blind, even if given sight, will still be stuck in darkness. I promise you that. For the hungry, give them a meal and guess what? Tomorrow they're going to be hungry again. And the dead even if raised, are just going to die again. 
Lazarus had a second funeral. We forget that. It may, a couple years later, he's hit by an oxen cart. Man, I wish Jesus, I wish Jesus was still around, calling forth from death to life again. If that's all this was, if all Christ offered were these great things, that's not enough. Because the greater work is the seemingly insignificant kingdom work of the rule of God in the hearts of men. It's what these great works pointed to. That's greatness. It's a force that keeps men up at night. It's a force that leads fathers to go to their sons and ask for forgiveness. It's a force that softens the hardest heart and tames the wild tongue. It's a force that makes a man open up to his wife and share his frustrations and his joys and his fears and his pains and his difficulties. It's a force working in a man to give his wife a place to dwell. Where she never has to say, he just won't let me in. When you think about these things, I find them the greater work. I am much more impressed and amazed at a God that can change the hearts of our children than one who can give them sight. I love the thought of Luke not walking into things or walking off of things, which happens seemingly every single day. That would be great. But what I love more is the thought of him delighting in the law of the Lord and meditating on his law both day and night. What I love even more is the thought of him not standing in the way of sinners and sitting in the seat of mockers. I love the thought of my son who's visually impaired being like a tree that's planted by streams of water which bears its fruit in season. Only God can do that. That's greatness. Whenever I was talking with Luke about this whole deal with calling the elders. We talked with them a little bit, Luke and Evan, on Tuesday and Wednesday. And um, Wednesday night, I was putting Luke in bed. And we'd read to them at night. And we'd kind of lay in their bed and pray with them and talk. And so I'm laying in bed talking with Luke. And I was sharing with him, confessing, Luke, we never prayed that, you'd been, that you'd be healed. And we never called for the elders, for you are Evan. And I'm sharing with Luke this whole thing. And I said, Luke, you know, he could heal you in a heartbeat, a blink of an eye. In this prayer time that we call for the elders, you could open your eyes and have complete vision. I said, or you may not. And I said, Luke, whatever the case, all right, I'm watching Luke's face. The light's off in the bedroom. The light's on in the hall, so it's enough light cast in the room where I can see his face. He's laying on his back, looking up at the ceiling. His eyes are moving back and forth because he's not really focused on anything. They're just sitting there, and he's still, but his eyes are moving, and he's looking up. And I said, whether he heals your eyes or not, we have a really awesome God, don't we? And Luke smiled. I saw his smile, and then he said, yeah, we do. That's greatness. That's greatness. What's behind that heart that led to a nine-year-old smiling at the greatness of God? That's the greater great. Would I take a healing? You bet. What we talked about as a family on Friday is, you know what? In our Bible study Friday morning, we got up and said, you know what? We don't need a healing in our household. Would we take it? You bet. But we don't need a healing in our household to know that God is God. Luke's smile was the greater work or reflected the greater work behind that smile that makes his blindness small. 
Sort of like seeing Jesus walk on the water. You're like, what Rome? You're like, what blindness? What cancer? What poverty? What loneliness? Look at our God. I want to show you one last passage. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. As you're turning there, I want to read a passage to you, but I want to just share how this developed on Friday morning with my family. We pointed out, or we discussed, you know, do we even really need signs and wonders when we've got the ones in this book? You know, would we take one, and do we hope and pray for big things? Yes. Do we believe that he can and still does do great things? Yes. But do we have to have them to know that he's God? Man, we've got some amazing ones right here in this book. We can celebrate with a nobleman who thought that his child was sure as dead, who now living. Any of you parents, can you celebrate with me? We can dance at a wedding that our Lord made merry. We can pick up an old moldy, dirty mat that used to be our home. No, that used to be our prison for 38 years. And we can stand with this dude and look down at this pool that we used to trust in and now look at our Lord that we now trust in. We have the miracles right here if we just climb into them. We can blindly make our way to the pool at Siloam with clay in our eyes and we can wash and rinse and see and shout with a blind man who now sees. And our hearts can race as Lazarus's tomb is opened and as Jesus speaks, Lazarus, come forth. And then as we're listening and we hear, <sighs> and we hear some rustling. And then we see like a shadow moving in there and we see somebody shuffle out. Our hearts can race with them as we see this mummified figure Stepping out of a smelly grave. Do we have to have a new sign or a new wonder with these marvels? These are enough. But here's the sweetness. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has, past tense, blessed us in Christ with every, not some, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's already blessed us already. Signs and wonders and miracles, that's gravy. Will I take one for my son and daughter? Sure. If one of y'all gets cancer, will I take one? You bet. But can we celebrate as a people, even if it doesn't show up, knowing that we already have every spiritual blessing, not some, every, all, ready. Do these leave you more amazed than somebody picking up their mat and walking? Does justification amaze you? Does glorification amaze you? Sanctification amaze you? Does propitiation leave you speechless? Do we define great like he defines great? There's greater works than healing a boy or turning water to wine or healing a lame guy or a blind man or feeding a multitude some bread and fish or walking on water or calling a man from death to life. And these greater works, they seem small and insignificant in the eyes of the world, but they matter in the eyes of the kingdom. And here's what they look like for a shepherd feeding your family the bread of life daily. No movies made about you. No cheerleaders dancing for you. No fanfare. Just reading the word of God and praying with your family. 
a seemingly insignificant work of the kingdom of God. Families. The greater work is walking with the people, knowing and being known as men and women of sincerity, authentic and genuine, on true journeys together. Here's the greater work. is deacons weekly showing an ordinary people the servanthood of an extraordinary servant king. Here's the greater work. Elders and teachers preaching and sowing weekly into the lives of families, wrestling with life and death and marriage and meaning. That's the greater work. And people of God, preaching and teaching and sharing a message here and abroad that's right on the cusp of completion. That's why we have a greater work than Jesus had. It was still in motion. Right now it's on the cusp of completion. The next step in the redemptive story is Christ coming back and ruling and reigning. We get to share a finished work, share a completed story. That's the greatness of the work that we're about. But man, it can seem so insignificant and small and unimportant, but that is the kingdom work. That's how God would describe greatness. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that we will define greatness as you define greatness. Lord, I pray for shepherds who are looking for the clouds to part, for them to sit down and read with their families. We'll see the clouds parted this morning. And we'll see the greatness of that seemingly insignificant work. I pray for those functional shepherds, those single moms or the spiritually single moms who are on their own leading their family spiritually. That they will see the gravity of sitting and reading and praying and listening to the hearts of their children. Lord, I pray that those things will be the greater great and that we will see them as greatness. Lord, I pray for smiles on the faces of our children considering the greatness of our God. And I pray that those smiles will be fueled and fed by mommies and daddies that smile at the greatness of God. As you, not hungry for the sensational, but seeing already the work being finished, seeing the, the amazing as justification, propitiation, glorification, sanctification. May we be amazed by those things. I beg for that in me, Lord. I beg for that in this people. That we can be a people that are amazed by the right things. And all the while praying for great things in these secondary issues. Lord, may we keep them secondary. But may we still be about them. Lord, I beg for that in me. I beg for that in Christy. I beg for that in the life of these, my kids. I beg for that in the other elders and their families and the deacons and their families. I pray for that in the shepherds in this body and the families in this body. By your grace and your mercy, please work these things in us. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Let's worship in song.